Thank you. We're going to start reading in verse 6, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. The point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And, and as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Robin. If, uh, if you're relatively new here, you may be part of the growing contingent of people who are somewhat confused by the never-ending carousel of new preachers. Um, so if that's the case, my name is Ryan Vincent. I'm one of the ministers on staff here. I work particularly with our adult ministries. Um, Jim and, and Justin and a number of others are actually in Mexico right now. They left yesterday um, serving with Crossroads down there, doing construction projects, and, and we will actually spend some time towards the end of our service this morning praying for them, but my name is Ryan. I am thrilled to be here to go through 2 Corinthians chapter 9 with you. When we were quite a bit younger, before we had any kids, and before we really settled into Stillwater as, as our permanent home, my wife and I spent a brief period of time actually living in New England. Um, took a job in Connecticut, New Haven, Connecticut specifically, and spent some time up there working uh, before we made our way back here. Um, it's different. It's rather different. Um, physically, New Haven, Connecticut is about the same size as Stillwater, geographically. Um, one small difference, you're, you're on the Atlantic coast, you have the harbor there, and the weather is what the weather is. Another small difference is at that time, about 15, 16 years ago, in a town the size of Stillwater, the population was about 820,000 people, uh, which I didn't mind. As I get older, I want more space. But I didn't mind whenever I was just right out of college. I kind of liked the hustle and bustle. My wife is born in Muskogee, Oklahoma. She hated virtually every minute there. She loved the people, but there were too many of them, and they were all above us. She didn't like that. She didn't like how close it was. It was a very different place. Um, I worked for a, for a firm, and, and to kind of even paint the picture, I had, I had a really cool location. So 
my office was on the third floor of this firm and it overlooked this street known as Chapel Street. Chapel Street in New Haven is the same thing as Hall of Fame. It's the thoroughfare that runs through the major university. So I was looking out over what's known as the green on Yale University. That's where my desk looked out that window and it was beautiful. It was stunning. It's, the, it's their version of the library lawn. Now I'm an Oklahoma State grad. In a small company of about 40, 50 people, there's not a lot of other Oklahoma State grads there. There were a few, actually. There's, there's a strange partnership between OSU's um, uh, department here and, and, and that particular firm. But by and large, the people I, I worked next to were from that part of the world, from that culture, from the education that goes with being from that part of the world and that culture. So over half of our office are, are Yale grads, and then the rest of them are Columbia, Harvard, Princeton. And so Rachel and I are fish out of water in this context. Spent a lot of time working late nights. We were always trying to meet deadlines, and, and it was pretty competitive. So I, I worked on, in this office, I worked on a smaller team of five or six people. And I worked next to a guy named James. I loved James. He was, he was actually a godly man, Christian man, um, from like a real gentleman from Georgia. Did his undergrad at Georgia Tech, and then did his master's at Yale, and then just stayed in New Haven and, and worked for this firm. James was amazing. When we're working late at night, you, you start to have interesting conversations, and it would, it would, as time goes on, it becomes increasingly personal, and I find out that James is, is, for all accounts, he's like really happy and enjoyable to be around, but underneath the surface, it's, it's kind of complicated. Um, I realized that, that James, in order to, to pull off this lifestyle he was trying to achieve, Georgia Tech's not cheap, Yale's less cheap, he and his wife moved to New Haven, an expensive part of the country. They buy a little house in a hamlet just outside of the main part of the city. That wasn't cheap. They didn't have, they weren't up in the firm enough to have the Porsches yet or like the, the Audis, which is Porsche light. They weren't there yet. They, they were still doing like the, um, I want to drive a Subaru, but I'm a designer, so I'll drive a Volvo. That's, what, that's kind of their standard. Maybe we'll have a Saab as a second car. It's that kind of world. And, and it, it's, it takes a lot to, to furnish that lifestyle. And, you know, we're working late at night, and James is just like, he starts to open up, and he's, he's really depressed. And when you just look at it all, this is 15, 16 years ago, well over a million dollars in debt between his house, his education, and all the things that go with the trappings of this life, sitting on the third floor above Chapel Street overlooking Yale University. I felt bad for him. Uh, I'm sure he felt bad for me. Uh, my wife drove a Honda Civic, and I drove my feet. I walked to work. Um, but we were young, and that's just kind of how it was. We were trying to start our careers there, and it was great. James, uh, he really had a hard time. And, but again, he's, he's from Old World South. So lingering there in the coffers somewhere deep down in the family line was a considerable sum. And... He finds out eventually that a wealthy family member passes away, like wealthy, wealthy, wealthy family member. Suddenly, James's house is paid for, his school debt is gone. This is before we just erased school debt for whatever reason. This is like his house is gone, school debt is gone, his cars are paid for. And it's like James had color in his face again. 
All of a sudden, he can breathe. It was like a prisoner had been set free. Um, James had a daughter at the time, seven, eight years old, Girl Scout. And I'll tell you this. I'm not like a sweet tooth person. I don't really care for the cookies. But I like giving money to people. So like I would just like buy her cookies. So I ordered however many of whatever my wife wanted. Later on, they come. She comes around to deliver, and I'm like, ah, I don't have any cash on me. Can I pay you later? And James was obviously put out by this because I was told the cookies were coming. And I didn't have cash. I hate cash. I'm not an envelope guy. It's like, just give me the cards, and all the money will stay connected to those cards. I don't want loose things rattling around, so I don't have cash. I'll, bring, I'll, I'll pay for these cookies later. I won't, I'll tell you what, I won't even eat them until then, but he was still a little put out. And I just thought... Isn't it ironic, James, that just a mere weeks ago, you were mired in unpayable debt, and then because of someone else's generosity, suddenly the chains are broken off, and then you're frustrated at me for a couple of Thin Mint boxes? Most of that story's true. (laughs) James is real. His situation is real. Um, I don't know that his debts were ever paid off. But when I say, isn't that ironic, James, that you've been forgiven so much and you can't let this one go, even for just a little while, we say, huh, that's funny. There's some disjointed approaches here. Jesus says that is a damnable way to live your life. Because at the end of Matthew 18, after telling a story of the unforgiving servant, a man who owed the king more than he could ever hope to earn and pay back, which was forgiven to him, and then on his way out of the throne room, grabs someone who owes him much, much little and wants to take him to task for it. Jesus says, shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over, so the king, to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. That is a, that is a Mathean way or, or a Jesus phrase of saying he is in effectively debtor's prison. His punishment is firm, final, and can never be changed. You cannot be tortured while you're making money to pay things. But like this is a final circumstance here. And then Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. And in Jesus' closing lines to the parable of the unforgiving servant, he illustrates a number of things. One, he highlights that money, the love of it, and the gracelessness that goes with money as we interact with others can be an absolute pitfall in our lives. But two, and I think the most important paradigm we can take from this little parable is that Jesus says, as I am, you are to be as well. As I am merciful, you be merciful. As I forgive, you forgive. Be holy as I am holy, 1 Peter 1, 16. So as we move from Jim's message last week about the generosity of God, I want us to have that paradigm in front of us. As God is, insofar as we are able, we are to be as well. So a generous God naturally begets, creates generous people. 
I want to have a couple assumptions in front of us before we make our way into 2 Corinthians chapter 9. These things are, are somewhat, no, they're, they're all together non-negotiable. They're, they're from Scripture. And we need to have these in our heads as we go to, to, to Paul's letter. God is exceedingly generous toward his creation. His providential care for his creation, for the world, for the systems that keep us alive are incredible. And I need to point to no thing different than Jesus being nailed to the cross is by the word of his mouth holding the carbon in those nails together as they pierce him to the piece of wood that he spoke into creation and he is allowing the lungs and the hearts of those soldiers to continue to do their things because he said that's what he wants. He is exceedingly generous to us. And, and, and without very little consideration to our merit. We'll get to that more in a second. Second, God expects us to model our lives with others when possible. Like, I, I can't die for you to save your soul, so I can't do that part of Jesus' job. But as Jesus is generous, I can be generous. As Jesus is forgiving, I can be forgiving. Even though it's difficult, I am called to do these things. So he expects us to model our lives with others whenever possible after his actions toward us. If you want to know what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, look at how God has first loved you. That is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. And then third, we are called. If, first, if one and two are true, then we are called to God-like, Christ-like generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 highlights this particularly well. Let me get there. 2 Corinthians 8. First Corinthians 8 is not what I'm looking for. 2 Corinthians 8 says this. In verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So Jesus establishes this paradigm of self-sacrificial service that seeks the betterment of others at the expense of oneself. So then we get to look at him and step into that role with one another. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's, that's a paradigm for Christian ministry. And that's not just vocational ministry. That's life as a member of the priesthood of believers. We serve others at great cost to ourselves for their benefit. And then Paul is going to, in our chapter today, invoke this idea of reciprocity. That when we do so, it will turn back on us for our benefit. So these assumptions need to be held pat while we go into 2 Corinthians 9. Now let me set the context for what Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to a very particular situation. In 2 Corinthians 8, he brings up his concern for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is, is suffering under famine, and they need, they need material relief. The Jewish church in Jerusalem needs material relief. So what does Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, decide to do? Well, he's going to make a little circuit through all the Gentile churches he's planted in Macedonia and collect money to send back to the church in Jerusalem. And in that way, and he'll say this further at the, bottom, at the end of chapter 9, in that way, he wants the Gentile churches to demonstrate their solidarity with the Jewish churches because of the union they have in Christ together. They are, they are in a, a, a position of hardship over here, so I'm going to collect money out here and send it over. 
And we'll care for them that way. It's, it's easy. And as we read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it becomes clear that they have at least verbalized their intent to participate. And Paul has been collecting money, and now he receives news that there is an occasion to write 2 Corinthians, which, uh, just as a kind of like a historical aside, 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter to the Corinthians. Our first and second Corinthians are second and fourth Corinthians. There is an actual first and a third Corinthians that we don't have. We just see that Paul references these other letters he sent. But he writes second slash fourth Corinthians to the church. He said, hey, you guys said you were going to do this, but I, I don't get any, any indication that you've completed what you said you'd do. So I'll tell you what. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send someone ahead to collect the offering. Go ahead and just put it together, and, and we're going to demonstrate our generosity. And then he builds out this case for that generosity in chapter 9. In, verse, in, in, in 8.14, he actually mentions why he wants them to give. It says, uh, at their present time, at the present time, your surplus is available for their need so that their abundance may in turn meet your needs. So we give now, and then they will give later, not to repay, but just to continue this cycle of generosity, in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. That's actually from Exodus 16, which Jim preached through last week. So Paul is is writing to this church, and we pick it up in in, uh, the ninth chapter. I think we can kind of navigate what he's doing here if we just see that he's going to answer three fundamental questions for us. The first question he answers in verses 6 and 7 is, in what manner should I give? Because if we admit it, like oftentimes we would say that giving is giving no matter the, the motive or the attitude or if, you, if, if it's money you need and, and it's money you get, then do we really have to bother with tone? What tone did you give it with? Were you happy to give it or did you kind of like kick the ground a little bit, but you gave it anyway? So even though you're, Paul actually thinks it's very important, the manner with which we give. He says in verse 6, the point is this. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. So in what manner should we give? We should give generously and joyfully, cheerfully. Now, I think verse 6 is frustrating for us. It seems brutally transactional and somewhat formulaic. And it just, if we're honest, smells like prosperity gospel. The more you give, the more you get. One thing that I think it would be helpful for us to establish at the outset of this, this section in 2 Corinthians 9 is Paul is going to talk frequently about like receiving because of what you've given. He never says that it's monetary. There is not this, I give a thousand to get 10,000. There's no, there's no odds making in the Bible. It is you give in order to receive, and then the right question to ask is, so what am I receiving? And then Paul can answer that, and it is 
phenomenal what you receive. But this is what's known in, in certain biblical circles as the retribution principle. If you do A, you will get B. If you do C, you will get D. It seems rather formulaic. This is actually how the, Job's friends in, in his story argue. They're looking at Job's life and they're saying, well, your life is falling apart because if A, then B, and we end up with C, then okay, Job, clearly there's some sin in your life that you need to do. You're not, you're not a righteous man as you claim to be. And that's Job's concern, is not, but I am righteous. I've not sinned against God. And Job is this weird exercise where God says, there is something of a retribution principle in Scripture. The Bible does talk like, if you do A and if you do B, you will get C. And God says, and by the way, I don't always have to play by those rules. And I think that we take the, the Job exception and we say, so are there no rules? And Paul's like, no, there are rules. Like, if you, if you don't give, you're not going to get If you don't sow generously, you will, like, what expectation do you have to then reap generous? Is this a one-way street in your mind? And Paul says we give much to receive much. And then shortly he's going to remind us, and by the way, we don't give in order to receive. But we do give, and we will receive. And then he gives us this crazy idea And when you sow generously, when you give abundantly, when you do so with great joy and without being compelled, then God is happy with you. God loves cheerful givers. Sometimes we look to see where Paul, where did you get that idea? God loves a cheerful giver. I think you can intuit it from a number of, of, of texts. But really what he does is he's taking the sowing and the reaping paradigm. It's from Proverbs 22, verses 8 and 9. And then if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it actually tags on the phrase, God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul's just reading his Greek version of the Old Testament. That's why he quotes it this way. It's not in your Bibles. But Proverbs 22 is still worth taking a gander at. So if we look at Proverbs 22, verse 8, this is where Paul's pulling this idea from. He says, the one who sows injustice... Like, if you're not a just person, you will reap disaster. And we're like, amen, go get them, God. And the rod of his fury will be destroyed. If you do, God will respond in kind. And then verse 9, a generous person, however, will be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. So what does it look like to reap generously? It looks like blessings. It looks like blessings. In fact, The Greek word for generous, the one who sows generously will also reap generously. That word is used twice in that sentence. It's it's not really the formal word for generosity. It's the word for blessing. So the one who sows with and through the blessings they have already been given, which is a very Pauline idea he's about to get to, will reap additional blessings. It's not necessarily financial, like monetary reaping. Paul says, I've got to collect this money for our friends in Jerusalem, and I need the collection to be characterized by both generosity and joy. And he talks about this, this heart issue, the positive side of our hearts. We do so with joy and, 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 and cheer. 
But then the inverse must be true. Deuteronomy 15.10 says, give to him, this is giving to God, give to him and don't have a stingy heart when you give. Because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and everything you do. That's you, if this, then that principle. So you could ask the question, does God really need my money so bad that he wants to talk about it at length? No, I don't think he needs it at all. But the manner of one's giving will reflect the character of their heart. Are you someone who gives with joy? God delights in you. Are you someone who gives stingily? God takes no pleasure in that. He doesn't, he doesn't, again, he doesn't need your money, so why give it with a stingy heart? It's like the monetary gain from your generosity is simply not the point. So that's the manner with which we should give. The second question is, what? okay, Ryan, I get it. In theory, giving is good, right? What if I can't? What if I don't have the means to give generously? Or what if I just can't get my heart to come around? What am I supposed to do? And in verse 8, Paul takes that up. He says, don't worry. God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. One of giving's greatest effects is not covering financial needs. It is demonstrating the wealth of God's generosity to give you the means to give. He has been so gracious to you that he has given you the ability to give. I, can't, I don't know that I've ever met a person who is at risk of giving so much that it's going to ruin them. I just don't know if I've met that person. That is not our problem. Our giving demonstrates God's grace in our lives to both provide the means to be generous and to live as people who have been recipients of God's generous grace. So he's able. If we were to believe the promises that, that Scripture cuts for us, Scripture writes a lot of checks on God's behalf. And if we were to start cashing them, we would see that he is not going to be mocked and his word will never fail to be true. He is able to enable us to be giving and generous. The outcome of our generous uh, giving and its return is up to God. It's up to God. I have some good friends that recently became aware that a ministry they were giving very generously to for a very long time had some severe um, financial misappropriation on the receiving end. Like to, to the point of like borderline, you could define it as embezzlement. And on this side, it's heartbreaking. But what I really appreciated was that it's not heartbreaking because, oh, think of what else we could have done with that money if we hadn't been hustled and swindled. No, it's, it's heartbreaking because like you've taken the goodness of God that was being mediated through us and you've perverted it into selfish gain. Like, generosity is, it's so part of God's character that when we demonstrate it and then it's, it, it, it's like you, someone thumbs their nose at it, it feels as though, yeah, you're rejecting me, but you're also just like, ah, oh, it makes me feel gross because you're mocking God. Now, 
from the giver's perspective, was that money wasted? I don't think so. Again, it wasn't ever really about the money. God's making his grace overflow to us so that we have everything we need so that we can do his good work for others. Philippians 4, we'll be there in a few weeks. In verse 19, Paul says it like this. He says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So as we give joyfully, it's an expression of our faith in God. And it is his generosity, it is his money, it is his gift to do with what he wants. But he says that he's going to take care of us no matter the outcome of this generosity. So to give is to tangibly trust in God's promises. I think giving can be difficult for us because there are few things more radical today than to really trust, believe, and act like everything we have is a gift of God. To truly say, nothing that I own is mine, that is very difficult. Because you've worked hard, you've put in the time, you have the sweat equity, the blood, the tears. You have the pain of loss and the endurance towards prop. You have all these things. You have discipline and sacrifice. I've done this. And at no point was any of it yours. But we can be led to feel as though it is and then just giving it to God. And if he wants to spend it in a, pardon the phrase, reckless way, That's hard. Just think of how inefficient generosity is. Between businesses, we can keep receipts and invoices. We can keep track. We know where that dollar is going and and how that's being invested. And we know how we're growing that. And then someone comes along and says, hey, I I need to go to Mexico. And I need $500. It's like, here you go. Like, I'm not going to get any of that back. I hope you go and fix Mexico. It's crazy inefficient to be generous. The return is bizarre. But at virtually every turn, the Bible speaks as though the return is far more eternal and far more valuable than anything you can do in your business ventures. Scott Hoffman, this uh, biblical scholar, he says this. He says that God is the giver of everything, is the foundation of our giving to others. The key to generosity is not caring less about what we have in the world, but caring more about God's purposes in granting to us his gifts. If you're asked, why did God give me this house? Why did God give me this job? Why did God give me these kids? They're all his. And for some reason, he wants me to steward them. And then if I just, honest, I spend a lot of time with my tiny little fist saying, mine. And he's like, no, it's all mine. You are my steward. In Ephesians 3, Paul says this. He says, now to him who is able 
Again, this, uh, this Pauline idea that we trust God to not only give us an overflow of abundance, but then enables us to do so for others. Now, to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the work or the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's right in the middle of Ephesians. Ephesians is three chapters of this is what God has done and then three chapters of this is what you should do. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are just gospel, gospel, gospel. Gospel, gospel. There's no imperatives in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. It doesn't tell you to do anything. It just says, this is what God has already done for you. Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, are, it's a tour de force of God's generosity to us. And it closes with, now to him who is able, the one who's pulled off everything I just described, he will do above and beyond anything that we ask. And then chapter four starts with, therefore. And then it's three chapters of, this is what you do. This is what you do. This is how you respond. And if you, it may not even use the word so much, but if you just look at it, it's, it's generosity. It's grace. It's forbearance. It's patience. It talks about husbands and wives and parents and children. It's, it's just like, because God has done, you do likewise. You have in, in our, our section here in, in, in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 9, as it is written, he distributed freely and he gave to the poor his righteousness endures forever. That's a quote from Psalm 112. And if you were to just read that and move on, you'd be like, oh yeah, God distributed freely, God gave to the poor, God's righteousness endures forever. That's not what Psalm 112 is talking about. Psalm 112 begins like this. Hallelujah, happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. The he, in our quotation, is you. So Paul says, as it is written, you distributed freely. You gave to the poor, and therefore your righteousness endures forever. He's calling the Corinthians to account. He's saying, you've committed to doing this. And even if you hadn't, I'd still call you to, do, to, to love your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. This is what we do. We give. We're generous. How do we endure forever? It's not because of what we've done. It's because of what God has already done. You, we don't have time to go there, and it's not even on the screens. But in Psalm 111, the psalm right before this, it says that the Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. All that he does is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. And then Psalm 112 flows from that and says, because his righteousness endures forever, so will yours. If you will model yourself after him, you get to partake in his permanent righteousness. Because he's generous, you're generous. If God has done and you do likewise, you partner with him in eternity. Growing blessings that far outweigh anything in your bank accounts. This commentator, Dr. Matera, he says this. He says, from start to finish then, as we looked at it, this collection is God's work. Paul's inviting the Corinthians to partner with God to take care of people that God loves. So when we ask to give to re-roof an orphanage in Mexico as we did last year, it's not because they need us. God's gonna figure that out anyway. He's just saying, hey, do you want to come along? Do you want to do what I do? Then I invite you to be generous as I have been generous with you.
Verse 10. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What if I don't have enough to give? Well, it says that God will give it to you in order to give. Scott Hoffman again says this. He says, God's promise in 2 Corinthians 9.10 is not to make his people rich, but to use them as instruments of his presence for the salvation of others. So I'm on the phone uh, yesterday, maybe Friday, I'm on the phone. This person that was really struggling with the changing relationship with this ministry in light of the financial mismanagement that's come to light. And it's like, I just don't know if I'm supposed to be done. And it's like, what if God has already been using what you've done to impact others for eternity? And what if he doesn't need your money to continue the work there? What if he has said, this time has come to a close because of these reasons, and I'm going to take care of these orphans in a different way? But I just feel very strongly that I need to care for them. I'm sure you do. You know who has the power to care for them? God. And wise counsel all around you is saying that this relationship needs to take a break. Like, I, I've, never, I've never decided to stop doing something and then God's like, well, that was not in my plan. What am I going to do now? I have no ability to do this outside of Ryan's cooperation. He's just, I, I'm quite certain he's never uttered the phrase. But with wisdom and discernment, he does invite me all the time to partner with him in what he's already doing. And that's where he calls on the generosity. That is a response to the generosity you and I have already experienced. The last question, what does this generosity do? What is its purpose? So generosity, uh, we can read it. We need to read uh, verse 11 and to, to the end. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, that we get, that one makes sense. There's a need, let's meet it. It's not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession to the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, I don't know if you've ever thought about being generous so that other people will pray for you. Pretty cool. As they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul um, is clamoring for superlatives there. The word he uses for indescribable is not used anywhere else in the Bible. Paul's just reaching for big words. And he's overflowing with praise because of what he trusts the Corinthian church will do. And he doesn't think that they're just going to get all their money back at some point with interest. You know what you get in return? God's name will be glorified. You know what you get in return? They will be praying on your behalf. Our generosity, its intended purpose, it glorifies God because it does gospel things. By that it mean, I mean, it 
It gives relief to those who are hurting. It helps those who are in bondage. It, it, it takes problems and, and, and does what it can to, at some level, deliver people from those problems, but that's not really the point because then all of it manifests in God's name being glorified and worship taking place. You relieve pain so that God will be worshiped. I'm like, oh, well, that is, that's like another way of describing the gospel. You know how the gospel is often described in the New Testament or Jesus' work is often described in terms of the Exodus? God freed the Israelites. Why? Because he doesn't like them being in prison? Sure, but the, the stated reason is that he frees them, he delivers them so that he can take them out so that they can worship him freely. So he delivers us from our bondage to sin so that we can then in turn and with living spirits enabled by the Holy Spirit himself worship him freely. What if, what if when we give to Mexico, to Poland, to Papua New Guinea, to Ghana, what if we give to any, what if we give to our daily bread so that others will worship God? Not so that they can make a sandwich tonight. It reminds me of Austin Ganyo, our church planner we partnered with in, in uh, West Africa. It reminds me of his, his encouragement to our teams when they come over. He says, feeding the poor is fine, but if you give someone a bologna sandwich and don't tell them the gospel, you are hateful towards them. You're generous so that God will be glorified. You're generous so that they will praise his name. You're generous so that they will pray on your behalf. So while Paul is giving to, he's calling for a, a collection to a specific historical situation, the, the fundamental principles in 2 Corinthians 9 apply to all people at all time in all situations. Generosity advances the well-being of the Christian community and it knits the church together. You know, when, if you've not had the opportunity to travel to some of our missions partners, it's amazing how we get there. They treat us like family. It's amazing how I believe they truly love us and we love them. There is this mutual affection that is not born out of time together. It's not born out of a long, long history together. It's born out of a mutual affection for Jesus and then the generosity we share as a result. Like a number of us are going to Poland in June. Justin told it up. If everybody goes that says they're going, we're going to spend $26,000, $27,000 going to Poland for a week. It's probably paint walls, play some music, and share the gospel with some Ukrainian refugees. I don't know. It sounds rather inefficient. But the money is not the point. The mutual glorification of God is the point. The gratitude is the point. The, the, the prayers are the point. And the unity that we have with this, these churches in central Poland is just bizarre. It's like the spirit would have to do it. You couldn't fabricate that relationship. So how do we integrate this just quickly? We reap what we sow. Like it or not, God pays us back for how well we've obeyed him. Sorry, sounds rough. It's just in the Bible. Be upset with the Lord, not me. So the payback is not necessarily material, however, 
but it looks like God's people praying for you. It looks like the lost coming to know the Lord, and it looks like enjoying the fact that God's name is glorified. And if that is not enough for you, then I just need you to spend more time with the Lord. (laughs) Does it sound risky? Yes. But I'd rather give generously and have it squandered than to be the one who sows sparingly and then reaps sparingly. We don't like talking about money. I learned that very quickly in myself when we did the capital campaign for the kids building. I had to go into your homes and say, hey, I know you had other plans, but we need your money. That's a super awkward conversation to have. I didn't like doing it. I'm glad we did it, though. And I'm glad more mature, wise people said, Ryan, you just need to get over yourself. To talk about money is to talk about God. Not because money is your God, but because God is interested in what money does to our hearts. To have conversations about money is to have conversations about God. And we do not like to talk about our giving. We like to hide it. We want to be modest. Paul has no modesty when it comes to giving. None. So my encouragement to you is this week, find someone with whom you do not live and tell them, someone or something you give money to. And if you don't have anything, tell them someone or something you would like to soon be giving money to. Because to talk about money as believers is to talk about God's work in our hearts. That's my encouragement. We close with a lengthy quote, but I like lengthy quotes. This is John Barclay from a book called Paul and the Power of Grace. And this book is all about how God has been so uniquely gracious to us that the only thing we can do is respond in faithfulness and obedience. He says this, he says, the gift of God is and remains always incongruous. In other words, a gift created out of human nothingness and received in trust. We've done nothing to merit God's grace to us. But it is designed to produce obedient lives that, by a transformative heart inscription performed by the Spirit, produce what is pleasing to God. God's grace is designed to affect in us lives that please him. This grace justifies the ungodly, but its purpose is not to leave them that way. We're not just justified. We're not just saved. We're, we don't just have tickets booked for eternity In this sense, the grace of God is unconditioned. It's given in the absence of merit or worth. Can't do anything to get God's grace, but it's not unconditional. One of the ways, simpler ways I like to say it is God's grace is free to get, expensive to keep. You can do nothing to get it in the first place. It'll cost you your life to keep it. It's not unconditional, if by that we mean without expectation of alteration in the recipients of the gift. You cannot just receive God's grace in your life and not change. That is a mockery of God's grace, and it will be the quickest way to run out of it. It is free in the sense that it is without prior conditions, and it remains always a miraculous, unconditioned gift forged out of human incapacity. We've done nothing to earn it, so we don't need to go down that road. But it is not free or cheap in the sense that it expects no transformative result. That might seem like a lot, and John Barclay is not known for writing thin books. But what he is saying is if you have been given to generously by God and you would dare to then become a miserly person, his gift has a natural shelf life before it's withdrawn. And you might just find yourself, the one being tortured in prison in Matthew 18. 
Because the one who's been forgiven much forgives much. The one who's been given much gives much. Ecclesiastes 12 says this. This is the end of the book. A very very sobering book. You don't read Ecclesiastes if you need a pick-me-up, but it's a good way to end. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God, keep his commands. Because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. We may not like talking about our generosity, but it doesn't mean God isn't aware. And like Paul said, we don't give out of compulsion. We give modeled after Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. For the joy set before us as the recipients of much, we ought to be those who give much. And the weekly reminder that we've been given much is the body of Christ given for you. And the weekly reminder that we've been forgiven much is the blood of Christ poured out for you. Amen.